Good evening, everyone. Welcome to The Authentic Woman. This is your host, Shannon Fisher, and I'm excited that you have joined us tonight. Uh, We broadcast every Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, and we've got a real treat tonight. Uh, I'm going to be interviewing uh, a woman who has written her memoir, which is a a fantastic story of of coming of age through adversity. Um, And she's also a chief mammography technologist at a prominent obstetrics and gynecology practice. And she's represented them on television and in the media for years. And she's been a breast health educator for about 25 years. So she's... um, She's really covering a lot as far as her her book covers her personal life, and then her career covers helping the lives of others. So combining those two together, um, it really is a treat to put those together on this show. So without further ado, I would like to welcome my guest, Michelle Roll. Michelle, welcome. Thank you, Shannon. Good evening. Good evening. So the the name of your memoir is Invisible Warrior. Um, and I'll just read the, uh, the the back cover. Invisible Warrior is a memoir, a valuable historical account of my growing up in New York, an insider's look into a housing experiment which yielded mostly failure. It is also an inspiring, inspiring narrative that demonstrates success is possible even under harsh conditions. Escaping with two small children, an early pregnancy, and 35 cents, we proved life's possibilities and its glimmer of an indistinguishable light at the end of a dark tunnel. And so you were in the, the Bronx River housing project. So tell me, tell me what it was like to live in, in those projects. Okay. Um, so <clears throat> just try to visualize a housing project that was on about 13.94 acres. And then on, on these acres, Inside of that, there were 14 buildings, 14 store. There were nine 14-story buildings, and within wow. those buildings, yes, there was over 1,200 apartments. And then inside of those apartments were an average about six people. So it was very crowded, and you know, it, it was just a very crowded. Um, lack of privacy and, sure. and of dignity and and I say dignity because we were in such close quarters and the the way that the apartments were designed the pipes ran through each apartment and there were holes around like a hole around the the circumference of the pipe which uh-huh. allowed voices and smells and everything to just come through to several apartments. Wow, that's hard to imagine that, you know, people are fighting upstairs or, mm-hmm. uh, you know, cooking something or, or having even a foul smell um, yes. and have that come into your apartment that you can't get rid of. Uh, and yes. six, an average is six people per apartment. That is, uh, well, I mean, I guess this was this was low-income housing, and so, what what exactly was the project? Why did why did they call it the Bronx River Housing Project? Right, and you know my father's theory was that it was named a housing project because that's what it was. There was a a urbanist named Charles Abrams who designed this concept, and my father always thought it was an experiment, which it did actually was demonstrated to show how low-income um, housing, the, the outcome of the people, how they, their lives would develop. And, okay. and it was but documented. more of a social experiment than an economic experiment. Absolutely, yes. Okay. So you um, read, you've got, uh, you're going to read an excerpt from your book, um, just kind of trying to really kind of put into words a picture of, of what you felt while you were living there. So um, if yeah. now is a good time, I would love for you to, to read that excerpt. Oh, sure, sure. Um, <clears throat> and just like in, and even in life today, there, you know, there are inequities and, and life is, is not always fair. And there's just mm-hmm. a small snippet of the book, uh, the chapter called Surplus Food. And Surplus Food was a government 
as like we have um, what we call food stamps, but now it's a little different in that um, the public has cards that they use to go to the store to get food. Well, back right. when I was a child, we had to actually go to a community center and pick up food. Was and it just said cheese or or powdered milk and it, it FD you know FDA to, on the carton. So that's the way it was for us. So it, I mean, it was really no pride or dignity associated with it. You were definitely um, going to be out in the public. There was no hiding your 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 poverty or your or your lack of food. But right. in part of the book, um, just the section is called Surplus Food, it said um, some of the families admitted came under fraudulent pretenses. They either lied about their income or marital status, often hiding their spouses so that their rent based solely on their income would be reduced. These families profited from the imbalance of these holy systems while most of us struggled to survive. This false sense of material comfort was flaunted. I felt like I was living in the secrecy of poverty. I didn't have a pair of clean underwear to change each day, yet no one was aware that basic need was not being met. Uncertain what would be for dinner, I felt tension in the pit of my stomach at 12 years old when I gathered the boldness to ask. The return answer of, I don't know, expressed with such Angered frustration from my mother was confusing. Some of my other friends had kitchen cupboards overflowing with food and refrigerators so jam-packed the lights inside were barely visible. How was it possible for everyone to live in the same Bronx River housing project and yet have so many paradoxical life experiences? I observed life in this barrel of crabs, as my father so descriptively reminded me to do. I knew from my core that someday, somehow, I would get out of this barrel. I stumbled upon a broken chain with a medallion attached lying on the sidewalk and inscribed on this half-dollar-sized medallion was these words, Never underestimate the power of a woman. I never forgot those words, and even though I was yet a girl, it became one of the seeds planted in my hopeful heart. That's from the chapter um, Surplus Food. That is really, wow. I mean, just thinking that you would have to go and stand in line and get whatever was available, and if nothing was available, you wouldn't have anything. Did that cause... I mean, obviously poverty causes tension within families because you're struggling so much to make ends meet. Did it cause tension within your family, and, and did you ever feel scared? Well, um, you know, it's amazing. I, I didn't feel afraid as much as I was uncertain. I think, you know, it's a difference. I mean, I didn't really consider it fear, but just uncertain. But I have right. to say that even in spite of um, that uncertainty, I have to share how that, and, and I uh, imagine that this goal goes on in a lot of households where um, poverty, which is a lack of, could be a lot of things besides food and clothing when you're in poverty. But my parents are so creative in the way that they provided the surplus that we needed. And if I could just give you an example, I would love to um, just give you an example of that. Um, Absolutely. My, my, my father um, cleaned the the um, Museum of Modern Art, and he was an artist himself. I mean, just a phenomenal artist. His art could have hung in the Museum of Modern Art. And he would bring home postcards. And back then they had postcards that had the actual miniature size um, uh, drawings of Monet and Renoir, and he brought those cards home, and that's how we were able to learn and appreciate art. We would not have been able to afford to possibly go to an exhibition, but my father brought it into the house. 
And that is so fantastic. I mean, mm-hmm. because most people in your position would never, ever go to that museum. They would never have access to it. They would probably not even know that it existed because they, you know, a lot of people rarely left those grounds. And so Absolutely. what a wonderful cultural gift to you. Yes, I I definitely agree. Um that's great. And so so you had so that was was that the seed that sparked creativity in you? Uh the, those postcards from you from the museum, was that the first time that you ever really kind of saw the magic of creating things? Well, no, I think also my father um he loved to listen and it's it's really ironic how popular podcast and and radio internet radio is now because he listened to the radio because back then you know television wasn't as popular we didn't have color television and we only had one television in the house but he listened to radio but he loved um to hear stories and so what he would have me do is to read the times and read about current events. Well, I was just a small child, and I would say, Dad, you know, I don't know what this word is, and he'd say, get the dictionary. And I'd get the dictionary, and every time I came across a word that I didn't know or um, could not pronounce, I looked in the dictionary. And I really believe that that was another seed that was planted that helped me to really love and appreciate literature and words and just become a wordsmith because it was so it was just ingrained without me even being conscious of it as a child sure and also the value of intellect and education and uh valuing your brain because uh, i i'm sure that a lot of your peers in those projects uh obviously you are a success story we'll talk a little bit more about you later but i'm sure <laughs> A lot of the people that um, that you grew up with, your peers and, and maybe even extended members of your family, ended up taking the wrong path. So kind of walk me through how that would happen for some of the people that you knew. Yes, and, then I, you know, when I, when I wrote the book, you know, it's amazing. The motivation was for on many levels, and one, it was for me to tell the story, but it was for those who – who still live in silence, who are invisible, who who still fight invisible battles, many who have fought invisible battles and lost. And those are some of the friends that, that I have lost um, that have not been able to continue the journey because of drugs and um, poverty and hopelessness that we encountered growing up in the housing project. Unfortunately, um it would it was too much for them to be able to survive and it and you know what it's interesting that even though the story was written about what it happened in the 70s this mm-hmm. is still very true today if you drive within your own city and look at your own um urban um cities you'll see the housing projects you'll still see a level of hopelessness and poverty and and lack of um, desire or ambition. And that same mindset was then in the 70s is still unfortunately now. So, you know, I think this book will always be relevant, unfortunately, um, in the areas that talk about the same problems that we still face in our society. And I lost a lot of friends um, because of, of the drug addiction and that some of my brother's friends who were a, a generation, not a generation, but much older, um, lost their lives in, in Vietnam, which is now, you know, we have our own uh, war where we've lost many in our generation. But it just right. continues to almost tell the story over and over again. And I think it it'll be interesting because in this narrative, you already know the end of the story, and you and you can know that your story can end like mine. It, it right. Can, it doesn't have to end, you know, with an overdose, or it doesn't have to end, you know, with losing your life, you know, in the streets. And and that, I think that's the. I know that's the motivation. I don't think I know that's why I write. Sure. And so, did you, while you were valuing, uh, you know, educating yourself and art. 
um, did you feel pressure from any of any of your friends uh, as you were growing up to not pay attention to that and that the fear of the unknown that they had, they wanted to keep everybody right there with them? Well, you know, I didn't realize until, you know, looking backwards, the infusion of art, the infusion of literature, the infusion. I didn't realize that that it was even occurring because I was a child, I was young, you know, I didn't realize. And so there was no outward competition because I really didn't, I wasn't set aside as a educated young person or a knowledgeable, you know, uh, person that knew about art. So that wasn't the problem. I think that what happened was a lot of the potential that a lot of us had was never realized. And that's another one of the stories in the book called The Audition. Um, you know, you always hear that the two things that equal success is um, preparation and opportunity. And really, one without the other, it's very hard to, to, to become successful. And That's right. So, yes, and so even though my father and my mother was – trying to put those things in me, the other things were missing, which caused me to to make choices and for my life to take longer to get to where I needed to go. Sure. And so so talk about so so that was just that was ingrained in you and that was part of your psyche and your subconscious. And so let's Go into your your high school years, and uh, I, I know you you met your husband when you were young, and he yeah. lived in the same area. So tell me tell me how the two of you got together. Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, we um, we lived in a housing project. Like I said, we both we both grew up in the same housing project. I could actually look out my window and see him in his um, window, and it was really interesting how we met because his mother was a community advocate. She was a grassroots community organizer, much like what you do today, Shannon. And Sure. Um, so I knew her as a child before I even knew that my husband existed. I knew who Rose Roll was. and um, But I was sitting on the bench with my girlfriends one day, and he walked by with another girl. <laughs> <laughs> and he caught my eye because I'd never seen him before. And, yeah, I was curious as to who this person was. And so fast forward, a friend, a mutual friend of ours introduced us, and we just began to talk. And what we what we quickly realized was we both had the same dreams, same vision. We both grew up in households where our parents, although they were not able to fully realize the dreams that they had, they put things in us to help us to accomplish that which they which they were not able to. So when we got together, it just it was a continuation of the dream that both of our parents had, and it was just amazing. It yeah. was really an amazing beginning of our journey. That's and um, so. Her working as a community organizer. Uh, what was she, what was she working for at the time? Okay, so we had a lot of there was a lot of young people, myself included, that after school was out, we were twelve and thirteen, and we just didn't have we didn't have anything to do. So she started um, a community developing a community center where we had oh. everything that you can imagine sports and activities and bus rides to places where we can be enriched. Also, there's a program now that's worldwide called um, possibly the Neighborhood Youth Corps where they partner much like we have today mentoring, but they partner a young person with a mentor, but they get paid. Now, you might Mm -hmm. be mentored by an accountant, and you will help that accountant, and you'll get paid maybe $45 every two weeks mm-hmm. and for the summer, and that was your summer job. And so a lot of us were employed at 13 to be able to work That's- and learn. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah. what do you think, just from a sociological perspective, I'm you know mm-hmm. very into sociology, 
psychology. Um, mm-hmm. Why do you think so many so many cycles repeat themselves? I mean, why are we in the same situation today, all these years later, in the inner city, lower income areas? Right. What is it that's not changing? Is it what is well, it? Is it from within? Is it from without? Is it a combination? What isn't changing so that people are still living in these conditions? Right. I think that, first of all, I think that you have to you have to break the cycle. And how, how do you do that? So we had to break the cycle. The cycle, which we see a lot of people in, was one that we were in, and we still know people who are in it. And what I mean is when you're in a housing project, and you're used to affordable housing where you don't have to worry about turning the lights out. You don't have to worry about running the water or taking a long shower because you're not paying utilities. You're paying a controlled rent, um, but you have someone who is telling you when the heat comes up, um, when it doesn't, uh, what color to paint your walls. The floors are cement. They're cold. They're hard. You, you know, you have someone telling you everything that you need to do, and so you it's almost like being intellectually disabled because you never develop because you don't have to. And for some, mm-hmm. that's okay, and for others, it's not. So that's why some get out of the barrel and some don't. But the, right, the you part don't that learn life skills. Yeah, that makes sense. If you're right, they if don't, you're always, and they don't have a and desire. But for us. And I can tell you that part of, I think, part of the problem is just look here in the city and you drive down uh, some of the housing projects. It's been like that. I've been in this uh, in Richmond 38 years, and it's the same the, that it was, the way it was when, I, when we came. And what I'm saying is that I really personally would like to see them tear tear the housing projects down because what you do is then you then you have to they then everybody scatters and they begin to then see that there's another world outside of what they're living in mm-hmm. by necessity okay right but but when that same cycle is perpetuated for generations and generations some people and, and I'm not saying this as a critical or, or being negative, but some people never venture outside of that environment. They don't even know what they don't know. They don't even realize that there is something better than what they're in. And that's why, Shannon, that's why I feel that I have a voice, that you have a voice, that we have to use our voices to say, like in any situation, that people find themselves captivated by that that you can be free from it, but it's mm-hmm. almost like a person never hearing that before. There's some people tonight that will hear for the first time that they don't have to stay where they are. You know, some people don't even realize that. Right, and without exposure to other lifestyles, other areas, other opportunities, other worlds out there. Without that exposure, you can't dream. I mean, there are there are no dreams to have if you don't know what to dream about, if all you and know my, is, yeah. And my go father ahead. knew that through reading, through reading that he said you can go anywhere. He said you may never travel to those places in your lifetime, but you can go there through reading. And that's why it's so critical for our young people to read because then that's where they get the first glimpse of something other than what they're used to. And by him bringing those things inside the home, whether it's a postcard from an art museum or taking us on a trip to the village where he went to clean someone's house, but he still exposed us to other other lifestyles and, and people look different than the way we we're used to seeing inside of our own environment. And the same thing with my husband's um, mother. She exposed her children to something more than what they would have seen staying inside of that housing project. And even though, you know, when we decided to leave, some people were very offended that we thought we were better to choose Mm -hmm. a different environment. And it took a lot 
for us to say yes we yes we are we we're we are leaving because we want something more. It's not that we're better, but we want something more. Yeah, tall poppy syndrome. A lot of people just, you know, they, they don't want anyone to, to pop up over them in the poppy field. So, t- oh, yeah. so tell me, the the cover of your book is fascinating to me. It's, uh, it's a little girl walking mm-hmm. a tight between skyscrapers. And so tell me how you came up with that idea, and I'm, tell me what that is a metaphor for and what that means to you. Okay, okay. Um, it's you know it's always a story right in the picture from you know the, the images that we see and I um, we know an incredible artist. His name is Angel Lorenz Lorenzo and he um, much like us he escaped from an environment that was you know very limiting. He escaped from Cuba and we mm-hmm. met and over the years we we became good friends and when i told him about my vision for the book he was able to draw to come up with that image and what that image it represents different things to different people for me it meant that life is like that tightrope that you have to have a balance that there has to be balance in life and that even through all of the trials and, and difficulties that we have in life, you still can walk above your circumstances. And I felt like that. I felt that even though I was invisible as a child in some of the things that I went through, that I was able to to stay above my circumstances and that I was able to balance balance life. It's, it's something that we have to practice every day. Every day it's a goal to balance, but that's what it means to me. It's just when I see that young lady, and I wanted also, it was very important to me, that it wasn't so easy to to um, to to know what her her ethnicity was. I did not mm-hmm. want a picture with a black girl on the cover because. I know that sometimes when a person goes in the bookstore or they go on the website, the first thing they see, they look at the cover. And, you know, we do judge a book by its cover, unfortunately. And I wanted people to at least open the book. And if they if they see a, a young lady that can represent any ethnicity, that possibly they can see themselves. And, and that was important to me as well. Angel did a good job of of making her uh, racially ambiguous. He really did yes, because she, I mean, she really is just um, yes. mm-hmm. by looking at the the cover, you you wouldn't know what what That's race right. little mm-hmm. girl is. You said mm-hmm. just a couple minutes ago that you felt invisible, and so the title of your book is Invisible Warrior. And so how how did you feel invisible, and what was the warrior within you? Where, where did yes. the warrior part come in? Yes, yes, a warrior, you know, a warrior, and it's so interesting to me because that title kept coming to me the whole time I was writing the book because, you know, the warrior continues to fight. Um, that's what makes the person a warrior. They continue to fight the battle. It's, it, it's not over until it's over. And what I'm saying is that invisible in that no one knew the battles that I fought as a young girl, it shouldn't have been, I shouldn't have been invisible to the fact that I was going to parties way too young, drinking way too young, um, going and staying out late way too young, not having proper nutrition or or clothing or way too young, and no one really recognizing that, being totally invisible to everyone as it pertained to what my what I needed as a young person. And when you look at a child today, you know, 11, 12, well, 9, from 9, 9, 10, 11, 12, um, that's, that's, that's not a good thing. And, not but at in all. But in spite of that, in spite of that, you know, um, I had a dream and a, and, a, and a desire, and I believed in my heart that I was not going to stay in my circumstances. And then when I met my, my husband or my boyfriend at the time, we had that same dream. And so it's like when you wake up, you realize you're not really dreaming because someone else sees the same thing that you're seeing. So how did you get from 
meeting your now husband to mm-hmm. leaving the projects to leaving New York City altogether. So how okay. how what was the trajectory there? Yes. Okay. So we met and we dated and we talked and we dreamed and we and we made plans for the future and here I was 14, he was 17 and we didn't know that how soon or how quickly that future would become become our our, our present. But after several years um I became pregnant. And I think that's interesting for me. It's very important, and I discussed this with my daughters before I wrote the book. We have to be honest and open with our young people. If we want them to be able to um, navigate these waters, you you better give them the equipment. And so I became young and pregnant, but we loved each other, and we wanted to be married, and um, we wanted a future for our child, our unborn child, and for ourselves. And so we eloped, and we got mm-hmm. married. And I was, How old were you? I was 17, and he was 20. Okay. And, um, and we had our daughter um, two weeks after. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we stood at that altar and made our vows, and that was 43 years ago. And um, oh, during that time, we... We dreamed and we and we stuck together. Um, we were just, we still are. We're just. When I inhale, he exhales, and that's the way it's been since that time we met. And so we planned our future, and we moved out of the project because we lived with my mother for a period of time when I first when we first got married, and then we mm-hmm. moved up the street for um it's a couple blocks from the project but we were out of the project and then we moved to another apartment in the Bronx and it was really incredible um it just really is a chapter that talks about Bronx summers and I really hope that it resonates with so many people who have lived in communities um when we had communities where people looked out for each other and that's how the Hispanic community kept us they just embraced us, they fed us, they they helped us, they protected us inside of which was a heavily uh, predominant Hispanic community. But we were struggling, and Howie was working, and I was home um, with our child, but we, we were struggling. And so um, then we had another child, and, uh-huh. and we finally, um, he lost his job, and we knew that we, needed to do something, and his friends at the job that he lost promised that they would look out for him, and they did. And when the job became available in Richmond, Virginia, um, they uh-huh. told him about it, and he applied, and the, the employer sent for him to come, and, you know, we were able to leave um, the Bronx, and when we got in that cab... It was a moving van that pulled up that day to get our things, but they were surprised because all we had, you could fit in a trash, a leaf bag, and we had a dresser and a crib, two babies, and pregnant with the third that our family didn't even know about, and 35 35 cents in our pockets when we landed on that tarmac in Virginia. But we had a hope, we had a dream, and we had each other, and... The rest is history. <laughs> That's right. Well, so you you became now you are a mammography technician, and you've been uh, you've been doing this for a quarter of a century now, working in women's health and yes. educating women on on breast health. So, tell me, what's your passion there, and why did you choose that field uh, above any other? Yes, yes. You know, um, we we had four kids. And mm-hmm. after we moved to Virginia and our family continued to grow, and we needed a second income. And I picked the profession that I felt, an X-ray technologist, that would get me home um, at the end of the day, would you know, pay a good salary, and, and that's why initially I chose to be a radiologic technologist. Well, mm-hmm. after a short period of time, I realized that taking chest X-rays and pictures of bones was not wasn't what I wanted alone. I wanted something more. And so the specialty of mammography came about and it was very new. And so I um 
I started training to be a mammography technologist, but boy, did I have a lot to learn, and which helps me to maybe share a little bit about the next project. But I have to say that as it pertains to mammography, I did not really understand the level of sensitivity that was required. And so I um, I met a young lady um, who really demonstrated what compassionate care was about as it pertained to taking care of women and and performing mammography. And I lost her to breast cancer uh, many years ago. Her name was Irene. And what I learned from her became the blueprint for me as a uh, mammographer. And I realized that if I was going to perform mammography, that I needed to be the best that I could to them for what they needed. And so it became my my mission and my passion to make sure that every woman that I encounter for a mammogram, that when she leaves, she may not say it was a painless experience, but she will say that she had a positive experience and she will come back again next year. And that is the goal that, you know, um, women have a lot on their plates. And when they take the time to come to have this done, they need to really understand and be educated, but they need to have a reason um, to be motivated every year because it is every year for the rest of your life to have your mammogram. And so that has been my passion and um, it's what I do every day and have for more than 25 years. I think that's fantastic. And uh, you wrote a, a piece for the, the Richmond paper uh, in the, for the column In Her Shoes. Tell, uh, tell the audience what that, what that piece was uh, about. I tell you, um, wow, I, I, I can tell you so many stories, and that's why I'm writing this next book um, called The Room. But um, I met a woman who, on the face, like every woman that you see, well-dressed, you go to the waiting room, everybody looks the same and very appropriate in their manner and how they carry themselves. And when I called her back, you know, just like any other woman for the day, but when I got her in that room and she took off that cape, her whole torso was covered with bruises. Oh. I had never seen anything like that in my life. And I, we stood there and the tears began to flow. And I just held her and and just held her, and she just wept. And I told her, you know, I asked her, you know, was she safe? And she said yes. She was in a, a women's shelter, but her husband had beat her in her breast so that no one else would be able to realize that he was abusing her. And, um, you know, it, it profoundly affected me, and... Um, but it just, again, reinforced that I have to be sensitive about what I do. It, it cannot be, it, it just has to be a, a, a profession of sensitivity and compassion. And so she dressed, and I promised her, you know, to this day, you know, I probably couldn't recall her name if I wanted to, and I think intentionally or subconsciously, you know, you forget the things that you don't want to share, and that's right. her name. That's her name, but... I will always remember her and um knowing that she's safe and she's free from that that abuse has really um helped me. And so those are just the tip of the iceberg of the story. Well, sure, because in getting a mama, getting a mammogram is such an intimate yes, it uh, is. activity. I mean, you know, you're you're really at the mercy of someone else. Someone is handling your breasts, you know. Yes. So I mean, yes. it's definitely some you're you're very vulnerable in that position. Yes. So um, the I, fact I that like you to... have realized, you know, the the ne- necessary sensitivity, I think that yes. yeah, yeah, that's and great. But, well, me, go ahead. I was going to say, I, I think the reason that it's so important for the, us to have this dialogue is because every day there's somebody that needs to hear that. You know, there is someone who cares and and that they can be free to share. And let me just share this real briefly. Um, Not too long ago, um, 
I love music, and I always have music on in my room or whenever I'm in a room that I'm in all the time. And um, I first I was going to turn it down because, you know, it. I thought maybe it was too loud. It was just very smooth, easy listening. And she said, no, please, please don't don't turn it down because she said I need a distraction. And I said, okay, no problem. And she, as she got closer to the machine, you know, she said, oh, I'm just so nervous and my hand's sweating and I'm just so nervous. And I said, it's okay, you know, we'll get through this. And as I began to position her, she said, you know, uh, I just feel so embarrassed. And she said, but I had a very um, nasty grandfather as a child. And this is so hard for me. And I told her how proud of her I was because I told her that in spite of her past, she valued herself enough to take care of herself by having a mammogram. And I think that was powerful for her to come and to go through it. And she did not have to, I told her, you do not have to apologize um, for anything that you're feeling, you know, the fact that you were able to overcome this. And she said that this was the first time in a long time that she had ever shared that. You see, and, and that's why I say that sometimes we don't recognize our encounters how they can set a person free from what has been has kept them in silence for so long. I wish, you know how you go back sometime and you say, what would I say to my 10-year-old self? I would say, speak up, you know, don't be silent, you know, speak up. That's That's what I would have said to my 10-year-old self. Well, Speaking of, of speaking up, um, you're, you're writing, you're in the process of writing another book largely yes. based on your experiences in mammography. So yes. tell me a little bit about that project um, and, and why it is so important to you. Okay. So I, um, when I started, when I wrote Invisible Warrior, um, I, had, I had a different um, uh, publisher and um as i as I begin to grow and understand the business of um publishing and the craft of writing, I just really wanted to be in control more of the mm-hmm. of the process and so I started a writing company and it's called sweet tea writing company l l c dot com and the interesting thing about the name is it's spelled S W E E T E A as opposed to, you know, the double T. And it's a nod to um my husband who helped me to name it because he knows of my passionate um love for tea. And um so it Sweet Tea Writing Company, um it, it it's another um step towards um, giving people a voice, and um, you know, I'd like to tell you the the the, the platform or the about sweet tea writing. Um, the name um, sweet tea is metaphorical um, for what I believe life should be: sweetly balanced, refreshing, and always leaving a taste for more. And mm-hmm. so, um, sweet tea writing is going to be a company that showcases other authors and their works. Um, hopefully it will be a catalyst that will point readers towards books filled with life-changing narratives. And, you know, I put that out there. I hope that um, people that are starting out, authors who you know, who write narratives that are life-changing, that they can, you know, send me a, um excerpt, and I will be glad to help them to facilitate getting it out there because I think it's important to have um, a narrative that helps people get further down the road. But um, the project- I think a lot of our listeners are going to be really excited to hear that because, you know, we're on the uh, Authors on the Air radio network, and mm-hmm. there are so many aspiring authors uh, yeah. and writers who are just getting started um, you know, who who really just kind of don't know where to go and, and don't know to where they should send their manuscript or, or their first chapter. 
So, uh, so I think your sweet tea is a fantastic opportunity for a lot of people to reach out to you and, um, you know, it'll help you give them a voice. But yes, let's absolutely. rewind for a second. Mm-hmm. What made you decide to start writing in the first place? When did you start loving it, and at what point did you identify yourself as a writer? Yes, it's, it, it's amazing. I think that um, my 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 focus in the beginning, being a young mother, young wife, and was to raise our daughters and to be a wife and a mother, and then a nana, and we just had and I had a pr- profession as a breast imager, but um, I always loved words. I always loved to read, and I would write family letters, you know, during once a year, and everybody would say, why don't you write the letter, you know, and I just really enjoyed, you know, putting it into words and expressing um, what our what our goal and vision was for our family. But um, I met a radiologist, and uh-huh. we spent time talking in the evening when everybody went home, and we shared our love for reading, and she told me about a book called The Kite Runner, I think his name is, I want to say, Khalid uh, Hosseini. I I might be wrong, so please Google his name. But The Kite Runner is a bestseller. And I read the book, and when I read the book, it just just lit a fire uh, of passion inside of me. I, I didn't even really realize how much I had inside. And... I said, wow, you know, if I can express myself like that, that's what I want to do because it made me realize I had a story. And his story is a very cultural story about his childhood, and it did, it really evoked a lot of the memories and things that I went through. And I just said, you know, I just really want to start writing. So I, I told the radiologist, and she said, you should just start. Right. So, I, I I wrote, and the very first thing that I wrote was this. Do I have a minute? I'll I'll read it if we have a minute. Absolutely. Okay. So it was the very first thing that I wrote, and it's the it's the introduction of Invisible Warrior, and it says their thick brown braids bounced up and down as their hips swayed from side to side, to the inner rhythm they felt as they turned the rope and sank. Double Dutch. How ironic that starting something for the first time is so very similar to jumping double Dutch, watching your turn, watching as the rope overlaps, seeing only seconds of opportunity to jump in, come, and then go. Your heart beats quicker as you recognize that not only are you waiting for what you feel is the right time, but so are others standing behind you waiting for their turn, waiting for you to go first so that then they will become the second, the third. Oh, how similar life is that when we become the first one to try something for the very first time, the line quickly forms behind us for others who have been waiting for us to be the first. Double Dutch. I watched and waited. My heartbeat quickened. I felt my anxious stomach turn. I began to bounce and sway in the same rhythm as the jump rope turners. I began to see my opening much clearer now as I moved closer, closer. Then my time came, the opportunity that I had been waiting for what seemed at this moment my entire life, always wanting to write and demonstrate, express what had deeply been a part of me, a rhythm, a style, a voice that could only be heard in this manner. And somehow I always knew that when I jumped in, others would be right behind me. So I jumped in. And that started the book. And Okay, I, so how freaking awesome is it that that is the first thing you ever wrote? I mean, clearly you are meant to be a writer if that's the first thing that you ever sat down because it's so... <laughs> So beautiful and so thoughtful um, and and just soulful and I so I I am sad that you didn't start writing earlier in your life so that you would have more work out there but I know you're um, you'd continue to work so for your yes, first book was it difficult for you to 
to get out your story? Well, I tell you, the other thing I quickly learned was I didn't know a thing about the craft of writing. So I started to read people, you know, and that's what I will share with young new writers is you have to study, and and if you want, the craft is the most important part, and you have to really um, perfect or work at perfecting your craft. And so I studied, I read books, um, good books out there, and, uh, you know, I'll share with anybody who wants to email me and ask. I can give them a list of books. But I studied and I wrote and I studied and I wrote. And I read other other, um, good um, authors. That was always the key, to read other well-written books, not necessarily Mm -hmm. memoirs, but it could be any. But I did read other memoirs that – you know, um, The Glass Castle and The Tender Bar and, you know, books that really continue to encourage me to tell my story. And it spent a lot of time writing. It took me seven years to complete this this book because it was a, a process of learning and writing. And figuring out how to perfectly tell your yes. story in your yes. words from your perspective. That's yes. mm-hmm. um, really, it, it, you know, it, it's amazing for people who aren't writers how difficult it is to it really is. make it perfect, to, to yes. make it so that when you read it from beginning to end, you think, yes, this yes. is what I want it to say. And yes. seven years for your first book is, is a very... Not not a very short amount of time, but I mean, some people take twenty or twenty five years yes. to out their first book. So um, kudos to you for that. And Thanks. your second book you're working on now. Where are you in that process? Yes, I've written two chapters, <laughs> and um, and the book is um, it, the the working title is the room. Um, mm-hmm. It will be about the powerful stories of the lives of incredible women that I've met over this 25-year journey in healthcare. I mean, the intellectually disabled woman, the woman that experiences domestic violence, the professional woman, the CSI woman, the the warden, the attorney, the detective, the blue-collar, the security officer, all the many hats that women wear. But behind those garments, are incredible women and um, have lives that um, have stories worth telling. And I want to be the voice behind those women because I think that it will help other women as well. And so that's that's what my project is now. It's I live it every day, so um, it's it's not easy to make the transition to work and live in the moment and then stop and write about it. So. It it will come when the time is is right. I have learned that you know, the timing is it, it will happen when it's time. I, I can't. I won't be able to rush it, and I'm okay That's with right. that. You, yeah. If if the words aren't flowing and you're not getting into that creative, you know, Zen kind of mode where you can start to tell a story, uh, you know, that life will the universe will tell you when it's time to sit down and start typing. That's right. You know, Shannon, um, there's this one quote that I wanted to make sure I shared because, to me, it says so many things in a nutshell. And I said the other day to myself, I said, wow, I pray that one day I will be able to have a quote that will will be meaningful enough for someone to quote because um, this quote from Maya Angelou says, there is no greater agony than bearing an untold story inside you. I'm going to read it one more time. There is no greater agony than bearing an untold story inside you. And I, when I read that, I thought that is so true. It is you, so true. I mean, to think, you know, I, I mean, I met you in your adult life when you're a mammography technician, and uh, I might not ever have known about your childhood, anything about your childhood, mm-hmm. that you were even, you know, from New York. Yeah. And uh, and so to to see that story and how much it it 
you know, you are the person that you are today because of all of the experiences that you've had. And some of them are so profound and so, um, just so striking that, Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I... I, I really can't recommend this book enough. Invisible Warrior, I mean, the way she describes what it was like to be in those projects and interacting with her peers and her family and the other families uh, in the projects, I mean, you can just absolutely kind of understand that you get that sense of why people feel trapped. Um, but you weren't. And so you've got the story of the, you know, kind of the caterpillar that turns into the butterfly. And I think, you know, that the most important part of the narrative and in the and the end of the story is that um, that you have to have dreams. Your faith mm-hmm. has to be your anchor, and you cannot forget where you came from. And I often, I think it's easy for some to just assimilate or to just hide their past. But I just believe that, you know, my life doesn't just belong to me. It belongs to God. And so I have a responsibility to tell my story and my husband's story so that other people, you know, then they can pick and choose you know, the, the, the path that they want to take, mm-hmm. but they have options, you know, that they know their options. And so it's incredibly important to me to be able to, you know, to share and to just, and to let people know that, um, you you know, the story is not over. As long as you have breath, as long as you have life, you know, you can change the narrative of your story. That's that is so true at any point in your life. And, so, well, so the narrative of your story, where are you right now? So you said you had four children. Um, yes. What's going on what, What's going on with your four kids? I know. It's so, I'm so glad you asked me that. Um, you know, they're, they're grown women now, and I won't tell their ages, but I will say that I have a uh, the oldest daughter who was our love child. I know she's probably smiling when I say that, but she's married. <laughs> Two children, her and her husband, Scott, um, uh, live in in Texas with two of our beautiful grandchildren. And then we have another daughter who lives with her husband and two more grandchildren. Um, They live in Atlanta, and then there's a daughter that lives in Tampa, and then there's one that lives in northern Virginia. And they're incredibly successful, beautiful women, um, the best daughters a mother and a father could ever have, and our son-in-law, Laws um, both are stand-up um, fathers and husbands um, that really make us proud, and our grandchildren are just continue um, the, that generational dream of of what their ancestors hope for, and that's what's so incredible. So it's amazing to see the beginning of the book when they were just babies, and now these young children that. You know, we started with 35 cents and two babies and pregnant and, you know, just a crib and a bed and nothing but love and our faith and a dream. And here we are, fast forward, and to see their lives, um, it just makes us incredibly um, thankful to God for for blessing us to be able to, to, be able to share um, where they are today. And it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful story from... From beginning to, I don't want to say end, from beginning to current, <laughs> and I, I just so great that your uh, that your children have gone on to do so many things, and that you instilled in them that sense that you can do whatever you want. You know, mm-hmm. they had that foundation, um, and it, it it sounds like you and your husband had that foundation, but everyone around you, outside of your families, didn't necessarily have that, but. Um, your kids had it from the start. You know, you guys, um, you really, you you came to Richmond and he had the job and you had all the kids and you became a mammography technician and and every story you tell just has a deep soul. And uh, and I just, I thank you for sharing your story with me. And so we're about to run out of time, but I would love for you to tell my listeners how to get in touch with you uh, if they, if they want to get in touch with you um, about Sweet Tea and how to get Invisible Warrior. Just 
give whatever contact information you want. Okay. So the quickest way to reach me is um, info at sweettwriting.net. And remember, sweet tea is only with one T, S-W-E-E-T-E-A, writing.net, or Michelle um, M. Roll at invisiblewarrior.net, or Michelle, or, or invisible, www.invisiblewarrior.net. It's a contact page, and you can um, email me there, or you can follow me on my Twitter at mrollnovelist, underscore novelist, mroll underscore novelist. Thank you so much for giving me the time to share. Oh, absolutely. And uh, this is uh, Shannon Fisher. You're on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, who owns this podcast. My show is The Authentic Woman. We broadcast every Sunday night at 8 p.m. And I would just one more time like to thank Michelle Roll so much. You have been a wonderful guest. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Good night.